Well, I invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Galatians. That's in the New Testament. Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And we are going to be in chapter 3 this morning. So you can find your place there. Galatians chapter 3. No single verse of Scripture has attracted as much attention during the modern gender role debate as Galatians 3.28. So says Peter Shim, professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. The declaration by the Apostle Paul that there is neither male nor female in Christ has been called, quote, the foundation for a new social order in the church. The result of this new social order, it is said, is that there are no longer gender-based ministry distinctions in the home or in the church. Paul K. Jewett, commentator, and professor speaks of this passage as, quote, the Magna Carta, Magna Carta of humanity, the great charter of Christian equality between male and female. Others refer to it as the most socially explosive text in the Bible, the Emancipation Proclamation for Women, or the Sexual Liberation of the Apostle Paul. It is claimed that Galatians 3.28, this statement, is not only the definitive statement on gender equality, but also the interpretive key that unlocks the more difficult gender passages in the rest of the New Testament. This verse is seen as having, quote, hermeneutical priority, the first place in the process of interpretation, the theological and hermeneutical paradigm for all gender passages in the New Testament. It is argued that since it contains the universal principle of gender equality based on the revolutionary significance of the gospel, it must be given priority over all other gender-related passages. Now, those are very weighty claims to place upon this Verse, Galatians 3.28. Is this really what Paul meant when he wrote these words? Do they really, these words, have these implications for gender roles? This verse is significant. It is tremendous. But I think this morning we'll see that its significance... And its meaning lies elsewhere. It's a profound reality that Paul is communicating about the church. It's a great reality that we want to see. And I fear that by applying it specifically to gender roles, we obscure what Paul is saying. This is week eight of our series entitled God's Grand Design the beauty of biblical complementarity. It's week eight. In this series, we are looking at God's design of men and women. And by complementarity, we mean created, made equal, indeed, in dignity and in personhood, made in the image of God, yet different and complementary in nature and function. A creation design feature by God as essential to being his image bearers. He created them male and female. So in these first eight weeks, we have, or seven weeks, excuse me, we have laid the foundations for this complementarity from Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where indeed we saw that male and female, man and women, are created equal in personhood, made equally in the image of God, yet made intentionally different as two sexual kinds in God's design. And we saw in that distinction in design from Genesis 2, this basic headship of man and the husband 
And this basic helpership of woman and the wife. And though sin, that is the fall, Genesis 3, complicates and distorts these roles and relationships, indeed can lead to abuse in these relationships, yet God's basic creation design continues and then is seen more clearly in his people. And so then we looked at Old Testament patterns of this complementary design. How does it play out amongst God's people in the Old Testament? And we saw these clear patterns. Yes, this basic equality before God, and yet a clear pattern of male leadership and the essential role of women in redemptive history. We see that pattern in the Old Testament. We looked at those different patterns. And then we move to the New Testament. And we thought on Jesus and the Gospels, and we see the same pattern. Male leadership, the 12 male apostles, and numerous women disciples. The value of women in Jesus' ministry, as we saw last Sunday in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. And then we we looked at the early church and the book of Acts. The apostles and their role, elders Paul and his co-workers, we see the same pattern so clearly of this male leadership within God's people in the church and women playing an essential role, partnering in gospel ministry. So that's what we've seen in seven weeks. Beginning today and over the next several weeks, we will look at specific New Testament passages that are directly relevant to this design, this complementarity of men and women in the church and in the family. And we begin this morning with Galatians chapter 3, now this somewhat controversial text to get a sense what Paul is saying here. Galatians 3. So let me read the text for you. I'll put it on the screen, Galatians 3, starting in verse 26 through the end of the chapter there, verse 29. Let me read this. It'll be on the screen. You can follow. Paul writes, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants or seed, heirs according to promise. Now just reading that, you can tell that we are in the midst of a larger Context, And so I want to spend a fair bit of time here developing the context for which we find verse 28, the statement of neither male nor female. Context is all important, I hope you know, for determining meaning. We just can't lift verse 28 out of its context as a standalone statement that we can just apply however we want in any situation. We must see what Paul meant. We must see the context. By the way, it's just always so important when you are coming to the Bible and trying to interpret and understand the Bible. It's not a subjective, what does it mean to me? Context is all important. What does it mean in its context? So because we have not been in the book of Galatians, that's our disadvantage. I'll spend just a little time developing the context so we understand, I hope, better what Paul means when we get to this verse that's in question. Just think a little bit on the broader context first, that is the whole letter. What is Paul up to in the book of Galatians? What is this letter about? Paul, I'll give you this, Paul is arguing against Jewish false teachers who taught that circumcision and law keeping were necessary for salvation. That's his purpose in this letter. He's arguing against these Jewish False teachers, that's what he calls them, who have taught, trying to teach, that circumcision and law-keeping were necessary for salvation. Remember, he's, he's writing to mostly Gentiles 
in the region of Galatia, these churches that he planted, mostly Gentiles. And there's a group of false teachers or Jewish teachers trying to compel them. Now that they've believed in Jesus, they must also be circumcised and come under the law of Moses in order to be saved. In addition to faith in Jesus, you must also come under the law. First by circumcision and then by other law keeping in order to be saved. Not just to grow in your faith, but for salvation itself. So he says back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is really worked up. He is angry. (laughs) I'm amazed, verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The gospel is at stake here. This good news of God's salvation in Jesus by faith alone. That's what's at stake here as Paul writes this. It's a gospel issue because they are trying to add to the gospel law keeping. And as he develops this, it becomes clear what he means by this distortion of the gospel or this false gospel. It's what I said. It deals with circumcision and the law and this divide between Jew and Gentile. That's who he has in mind as he writes mostly Gentiles, this division between Jew and Gentile. What's the theme of this letter? Let me give it to you and we'll see it. The theme, justification is by faith alone In Christ alone, not law-keeping, for both Jews and Gentiles. Salvation, justification, Paul's word, is by faith alone in Christ, not through law-keeping. And that is true whether you're Jewish or Gentile. Look at chapter 2 and verse 16. He gets to his point as he's arguing. He says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we thinking himself, even as Jewish, may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Sounds a lot like Romans, and it is a lot like Romans. Justification, Paul's great word for salvation. That's Paul's most comprehensive word for salvation. To be declared right, to be in right standing before God that results all the way in our new creation and resurrection. That's to be justified, right standing, relationship with God. That is by faith alone in Christ. No mingling of law keeping. And that's true for both Jewish people and for Gentiles. There's not a different way of salvation for Gentiles and another way for Jewish people. It is by faith alone. Justification is in Christ alone. So there's no separate basis of acceptance. And therefore, there's no division between Jew and Gentile in the church. So that's his, that's what the book is about. Now let's zero in on the immediate context of our verse. Chapter 3. <clears throat> the immediate context here. Chapters 3 and 4. In chapters 3 and 4, that's this unit here that we find our verse and verses right in the middle of. Paul develops the heart of the gospel. This justification by faith for both Jew and Gentile. That's what he develops in chapters 3 and 4. And he does it along these salvation historical lines. That is, he's thinking of God's work in redemptive history. And he moves from Abraham, where the promise was first given, to the law, to Christ. So that's his movement. Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, Law comes later. Christ has come now. So he's arguing along this axis, this historical, redemptive historical lines. Just just pick it up with me. What I'm going to do, I will spend a little more time here on context because it's really important to get it, to understand what he is saying when we get to verse 28. So pick it up there in verse 6. I'm just going to walk you through chapter 3 with a couple notes 
But if you have a Bible, it really helps just to follow along and see what, how Paul's argument unfolds here. He says, after chastising the Galatians that they have begun by faith, are you going to now be perfected by works? Are you going to come under the law? He goes back to Abraham, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham, the father to whom the promise was given, he says, it was reckoned to him as right. He believed God's promise. He was justified by his faith. Therefore, it says in verse 7, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. If you're going to be a son of Abraham, part of the seed, part of the promise, it is by faith. It's by faith. Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So this promise to Abraham is not just to Jewish people, he says, it's to Gentiles, because he says, in, in Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will receive this justification, this salvation blessing. If you're of faith. So it's Jewish and Gentile. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed. He's thinking salvation blessing with Abraham the believer. For now he gets to the law. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. It's what the law brings. For it is written cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law. And he comes back to his theme. Before God, it is evident, the righteous man shall live by faith. Justification is by faith, not law. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And right, right there, verse 13, Paul is getting to the very heart of the gospel. That Christ in coming redeemed us, purchased us out of the curse of the law. That curse of the law was hanging on us. And he took the curse for us. That's what his death was about. He paid the penalty. He took our curse, the curse of the law, verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So here's here's my first note. Those who are of faith, not law, are sons of Abraham through Christ. Heirs of this salvation blessing. And that, Paul says, includes you, Gentiles. (laughs) That's what he's arguing there in the first part of chapter 3. It's those who are of faith, the faith of Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith. Those who have that faith in the promise, now in Christ, they receive the blessings. You're you're counted as part of the seed, a son of Abraham. That's remarkable. Us Gentiles are counted as descendants of Abraham. And inheriting the promise of salvation. And it's all because of Christ. Christ redeemed us from the law. So it includes Gentiles, the basis of our acceptance being a seed. Now, he's emphasizing inheritance. Did you see it? Excuse me. Inheritance. This is his theme throughout as he thinks of salvation. A promise was given to Abraham, this promise of blessing, and he calls it an inheritance. So that if you're a son of Abraham, you get the inheritance, salvation. So he uses this metaphor of inheritance all through this section. We are heirs according to promise, not by the law, but according to the promise. So keep that inheritance in mind. Now, verse 15, we're still going here on context. He's got to explain that more. How, how is it that we Gentiles are sons of Abraham? And what is the purpose of the law? If the law wasn't given to save, what is its purpose? So that's what he takes up now, starting verse 15. He says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So he's using an analogy of a covenant. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. The word seed in the Bible is a collective noun. That is, the one form can be either singular or plural. When Paul understands the promise given to Abraham, yes, yes, it relates to his descendants, but ultimately it is a promise to the seed, one, that is, to Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham to whom these promises were given. So that's what he says here. Keep hanging on to that. Comes back to this inheritance and being in Christ. What I am saying, verse 17, is this. The law came 430 years later. Does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So here you go. Again, the history of redemption. You've got Abraham given this promise. And it's ultimately to a seed. And then 430 years later comes the Mosaic law. And he's saying that law can invalidate the promise. That law is not now adding on to the promise. It's not. That's not the purpose of the Mosaic law. So what's the question? What's the purpose of that law? Verse 19. Why then the law? Why the law? It was added because, or better, it was added for the sake of transgressions. What's he mean? Well, it becomes clear as you read it. He means the law was added to define and produce transgressions. We say, what? For Paul, as he understands it historically, how the law functions, the law was not there for righteousness, for salvation. The law, the effect of the law was to both define sin and promote it. That is to provoke transgressions. The law itself does that. It's not that the law is bad. The law is God's gift. It's good. What he says is good. But when it meets the fallen human heart, the result is it condemns us. That's what it does. So he keeps going. Verse 19, he says, it's been ordained through angels until the seed back to the seed. Christ should come to whom the promise has been made. So the law has this function in history until Christ comes. Verse 21. We would ask this question, wouldn't we? Is the law then contrary to the purposes of God or the promises of God? Is it at odds? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. It doesn't nullify the promise of God. That's not the purpose of the law. The law was never given to impart life. So many people get this wrong. Even people in the church today. Thinking that it's obedience to the law, right? Whether it's Ten Commandments or some other form of law is the way I am saved. Paul says, no. The law was not given to impart life. If it was, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But what does it do? It shuts up everybody under sin. So, so here's, here's the purpose. Of, he's going to give two functions of the law. First is that the law imprisoned all under sin's condemnation. That's the effect of the law. The law imprisons. It's, it's like a, a warden. And it keeps us shut up under sin and condemnation. It's the condemning effect or purpose of the law. That's how the law functions. The scriptures shut up all, everyone under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. God has done that until Christ comes to show that this salvation is by faith. Verse 23, look. But before faith came, for faith came. He means Christ. Paul's, Paul has these kind of two eras of history. Law, faith. Now, don't misunderstand. He doesn't mean there was no, no faith under the old covenant. There was. But as he speaks of now Christ coming, this era of faith in Christ has come. And he says before that, 
Before faith came, that is, before Christ came, we were kept in custody under the law. There's that constraining purpose of the law, being shut up, again, confined, imprisoned, until faith, which was later to be revealed. This was what the law did. Verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our, I'll translate it, supervisor or custodian until Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a supervisor. So here's this, here's the second function of the law. The law was a slave guardian until the unrestricted enjoyment of sonship brought by faith in Christ. So let me explain this because this is really important to get what our text is about. The law, Paul, he uses this word, Pedagogos in verse 24. Do you see it there? Therefore, the law has become our pedagogos. Mine translates tutor. I don't think that's a good translation. Supervisor, custodian is what he's after here. What is a pedagogos? Well, that's an actual function in the Roman household. That was the slave who accompanied the freeborn son wherever he went. He was his supervisor, his custodian. He supervised his conduct normally from about age 7 to age 17. So this is a wealthier Roman family that had a pedagogos. He wasn't the teacher. That was a different role. He was responsible for taking him to the teacher, but he wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a tutor. He was a supervisor. Supervised his... The point of the pedagogos was to restrain his liberty and behavior until he comes of age. And when he comes of age, he receives... His inheritance, you might say, or, or full freedom as a son now, a mature of age son. So we think in our society, age 18, you know, we have these certain privileges and rights in our nation, right? You come of age. Well, there you were under the supervision of this pedagogos to restrain your behavior and your liberty until you came of age and now you have the full privileges of sons. Paul's saying that's what the law was, especially for Jewish people. It had this restraining, constraining function that was temporary until Christ. And when Christ comes, faith comes, you receive full privileges as sons. You don't need the supervisor anymore. That is, the law's purpose is over. It had a temporary function. So now you've come into your inheritance here. So do you see it there in verse 24 again, it's become our tutor until Christ, not tutor, excuse me, supervisor until Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a supervisor. You don't go back under the law. You're missing the whole function of the law to restrain until faith, until Christ, until maturity. But now you're fully a son. Don't go back to the law. So there's this context. That's a lot on context, I know. Really important to get. Important to understand to get to our point. So, so just pause here before we jump into our text and just try to unfold it really briefly here. What's Paul's subject again in the letter? Justification by faith alone, not law-keeping for both Jews and Gentiles. Same basis of acceptance. Don't go back under the law. For everyone, Jew or Gentile, through faith, we are equally heirs of this promise. We are equally sons of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. So now let's pick it up. Look at verse 26. Here we go. That's context. Here's our text. For, you see, he's, he's going to explain why what he just said is true. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So let me give you just two points in our text here. Here's the first. Number one, equal spiritual status. Equal spiritual status. All sons of God. This is first point. Verse 26 again. For... 
you, you don't need the supervisor anymore. You don't need the law for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Right now, you are all sons of God. We don't need the guardian. We have received full sonship through faith in Christ. So, point. Through faith in Christ, all, regardless of race, class, or gender, are heirs of the salvation, blessing, promise to Abraham. Through faith in Christ, everyone, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your class, doesn't matter your gender. All are heirs of salvation, blessing, promise to Abraham, to his seed. When he says that in verse 26, you are all sons of God. Again, don't trip up over that. You say, doesn't he mean sons and daughters? No, he doesn't. He means sons because sons receive the inheritance. That's what he means. Again, this whole text and context, he's thinking of inheritance. Who gets the inheritance? The salvation, blessing, inheritance promised to Abraham, promised to a seed. Well, sons get so, so by faith. We're all sons of God this morning. That is, we are those who receive equally the inheritance. It doesn't matter what your gender is, male or female. Again, it doesn't matter what your race is, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter what your class is, slave or free. We are all sons of God. We might ask, we should ask, why? In verse 28, we'll get there in just a moment. But why does he, why does he go at these three pairs? Jew, Greek, slave, free, male or female. We don't know for sure. He uses different pairs and different texts. Different books. But it could be, probably, that this whole metaphor of inheritance is so important to Paul. That those who would not otherwise, under the law, receive the inheritance. Are fully sons who receive an inheritance. So under the law, Gentiles don't receive an inheritance. Slaves don't. And women don't. The inheritance of the land passes through the son. For the most part. So those who would normally be excluded from, quote, inheritance under the law are fully included in Christ. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. This idea of inheritance. Look down at verse 29. You'll see how he completes this little section by going back to that same point. If you belong to Christ, doesn't matter who you are. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's Seed, heirs according to promise. There's that inheritance again. If you belong to Christ, then you are sons. Not only sons of God, you're sons of Abraham. You are Abraham's seed. And therefore you are heirs according not to the law, according to the promise. Verse 27 explains more. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Here's my second note. The believer's new fundamental identity as seen in baptism is union with Christ. Union with Christ. So important to Paul that we are in Christ. We're united to Christ. Our most fundamental identity is to be in Christ. Doesn't matter what gender you are or race you are or social standing. For you are all who are baptized into Christ. He's just using baptism as a substitute for, for our salvation, our faith, because he's assuming they've been baptized. Baptism is that great outward sign and symbol of our union with Christ. That's what baptism is. As we are immersed into water in the name of Christ, we are united with Christ. That's the symbol of baptism. So he, he goes to that because it so portrays union with Christ. And if you're in Christ, then you have clothed yourselves with Christ. What a beautiful image. That if you're a Christian this morning, regardless of male or female, as I said, regardless of race or class, 
You have put on Christ. You're clothed with Christ. That's who you are. That's your most fundamental identity now. Clothed with Christ. Imagine. Yes, we're incorporated into Christ. But we take on Christ. We take on his characteristics. His virtues. We are Christ-like. We are Christian. (laughs) That's who we are. Do you, do you see one another like that? Do you, do you see your neighbor in this body here as a believer, as one clothed with Christ? Do you look at them and say they're clothed with Christ? That's their identity. Even more fundamental than gender or race or social standing. We're clothed with Christ. We're like Oh, there's this equality of spiritual status for everybody. That we're all sons, we're all equally heirs. That's what Paul's getting at. Now comes verse 28. I've already alluded to it, but you see it in this context. So he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one In Christ Jesus. So here's the second note. Second point. We move from an equal spiritual status. To a profound spiritual unity. We're all one in Christ. So he's he's developing. He's he's going a step further in his point here. He's talking about our equal standing. As sons of God. And that equal standing Results in a profound unity. Now he's talking about oneness in Christ. You see it? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So his emphasis here is on unity. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. Male nor female. Because you are one in Christ Jesus. Because of this equal standing. We have this profound spiritual unity. Again he includes these three pairs. What's his point? There is a spiritual unity in Christ that transcends racial, social, economic, and gender distinctions. This unity transcends those natural distinctions. Verse 28 is a radical statement for the church. It is a profound statement for Paul to say those words. There's neither Jew nor Greek. When so much of this culture was defined by whether you're Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Again, slavery was so common in the Roman Empire. The church would have been filled with those slave and free. And then to the very core, there's neither male nor female. When all of us, that's our basic identity as human beings. He's saying that those don't exist because you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's this profound unity. Those, those three antithesis there that he used represents the most far-reaching distinctions in ancient society. Right? Again, his main point is Jew and Gentile, isn't it? I mean, that's what he's about in this whole book. Every time Paul lists these kind of pairs, he always, it's always Jew and Gentile he'll start with. Because that's what he's mainly about. That's, that's his main argument in this book. How the law, you don't have to be circumcised. Justification by faith is Jew and Gentile. So he starts there, but he includes the others. Again, it's hard for us 2,000 years later to, to even begin to grasp the divide between Jew and Gentile. A divide based on the law. That has now come to an end. The hatred, the animosity, the distrust that existed. And he's saying, in Christ... You're one. You're one. There's one body. There's one new person, this church, in Christ. While these distinctions will remain, there is this profound unity amidst this real diversity here. That's what he means. Also note. What we want to ask ourselves again, verse 28, we don't just take it out of context. What, what does he mean? In what way is there neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female? In, in what sense? 
Well, in the sense that we're all sons of God. In the sense that we all have this inheritance. In the sense that we are part of the body that we're one. So here's just another note. These distinctions, racial, social, gender distinctions, are irrelevant as the basis for and full enjoyment of the inheritance as sons of God. That's his point. Those distinctions, which are very real and will continue, yet they are irrelevant. They don't exist. There's neither Jew nor Greek. They don't exist as the basis for and full enjoyment of the inheritance as sons of God. That's what he means. Again, I'm going to go back to why these three pairs we don't know for sure. As I said, why he reaches for these. We know Jew and Gentiles, his primary issue. But I think it, it does help if we understand his metaphor of inheritance. That he's concerned that we equally are heirs of salvation. Equally sons of God. Equally in Christ receiving the inheritance as the seed of Abraham. If we understand that, then again, as I said before... Those who would not otherwise, under the law, receive the inheritance do in Christ. Who received the inheritance under the law? A free Jewish male. In Christ, everyone. Everyone. What a glorious truth. This is the gospel, isn't it? Do you belong to Christ? Are you clothed with Christ? Is your faith in Christ alone, not in works, not in yourself? If you're laboring under that, that it's just trying to be good enough and I, I try to teach Ten Commandments or go to church or do these other things. <laughs> it says, don't, don't be put under that imprisonment again. No, faith alone in Christ for everyone. Doesn't, again, it doesn't matter your race. Doesn't matter your social status, doesn't matter your degrees, your abilities, it doesn't matter your gender. The inheritance is yours, is ours, through faith alone in Christ. How's that work? He is the seed of Abraham to whom the promise is given. We are united to Christ, and as we're united to Christ, we are the seed of Abraham, even though we're Gentiles. So, that's what Paul's about here. Let me draw these three implications to close. Three implications. Number one. I hope, I hope, just I know it took a long time there to develop that text, that we clearly see, <clears throat> first, that Paul is not addressing gender roles in ministry or marriage, but is concerned with our spiritual Status in Christ and our unity as the body. Paul is not addressing gender roles in ministry or marriage. It's just not his subject. It's not in view. As I tried to show all through this, he is concerned with our standing in Christ, regardless of who we are, and our unity in Christ. Any, quote, equality, Paul doesn't use that word, but if there's any equality implied, it's what we said, it's equal access to God and equal standing before God. He's not thinking about role distinctions. He's not thinking about ministry and ministry leadership. He's thinking about our basis of standing before God. Galatians 3, 28 is a salvation statement, not a gender role statement. So that's not what he's about. That's not what this text is. I would argue that's to take this text out of context and try to apply it where Paul did not apply it. So if this verse is not about gender role, it's about salvation, it's about our standing, our justification... It cannot be the definitive statement on gender equality or the interpretive key to unlock all other statements. I think that would be a 
gross misuse of Galatians 3.28 out of context. So that's, that's just the first implication. It's not what Paul's about here. Second implication. This unity, verse 28, this oneness in Christ does not remove all social, racial, social, or gender distinctions. The social implications of our unity must be interpreted by the rest of Scripture. No doubt, verse 28, though he is talking about salvation and equal standing and our unity in Christ, yes, it does have some implications, some social implications for our unity. These distinctions, by the way, will continue within the church. There will still be Jew and Gentile. In this culture in Rome, there will still be slave and free. And obviously, there will still be male and female. They continue, and the rest of Scripture has to tell us, how does this profound unity in Christ then affect, apply to social implications? Tom Schreiner, professor, speaking of this verse, wrote, quote, Paul himself never understood Galatians 3.28 to cancel out all distinctions. He continued to believe that there was a difference between Jews and Greeks. Otherwise, the whole argument in Romans 9 through 11 is superfluous, if you remember that. He continued to believe that there was a difference between slaves and masters. Otherwise, his advice to both is contradictory. He continued to believe that there were differences between males and females. Otherwise, his indictment of homosexuality is inconsistent. His commands to husbands and wives, incomprehensible. And his restrictions on women, a relapse from his better days. The value and worth of all human beings is proclaimed by Paul, but this verse must not be served up so that it fits with modern ideologies. We must hear Paul's own word, be it ever so foreign to us. These three antithesis, these three pairs, Jew, Greek, or Gentile, slave, free, male or female, they're not all the same. Right? They're not all of the same nature where these distinctions come from. The Jew-Gentile is from the law. And now that Christ has come, how does his fulfillment affect that? That's Paul's main argument here, that that divide has been overcome. Slave and free is society, right? And likely, mostly sin. And Paul will have to deal with the implications for the church, and he does. However, male and female, that we've argued in the many weeks of this study, are based on creation, on God's good design. They're not the result of the fall, these distinctions. And so how this unity, profoundly in Christ, applies to these different pairs, the rest of Scripture has to tell us. And indeed it does. And that's where we're going to go. How does Paul understand male-female distinctiveness amidst this unity in the church and in the family? Paul is not ambiguous about it. We're not left to inference. Paul doesn't contradict himself later as he writes. That's where we're going. I want to finish with one last implication. <clears throat> I said it does have implications socially. If there is one that we can draw, I think, so clearly from this text, it's this one. Women should not be viewed or treated as inferior in value to men in the church, but as fellow heirs of the grace of life. If there is an implication we can draw so clearly from this salvation statement of our equal standing before God, is that we should not, the church should not be marked by treating women as inferior in value to men. That should not be in the church. Sadly, it has been, I know. If we think men of ourselves in some way superior in value, may God convict us. If we treat women with any kind of contempt that way because of our attitude, may God change us 
and lead us to repentance. They are equal heirs of salvation. Equally treasured by Christ, clothed with Christ. They are fellow, we are to see them as fellow heirs, women as fellow heirs of the grace of life. I'm, I'm quoting there from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, a text that we're going to get to. Oh, by the way, that text, where, where he's quoting that to husbands, how they view their wives, treat them as fellow heirs, grant them honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life. It's in the context of marriage where he talks about headship and submission. That's where that verse is found. So that in Peter's mind, now going outside of Paul, Peter's mind, this equal value of women is not at odds with this basic headship and submission that he lays out. So that's what we want to see. How does that work? How does that function? What does the Bible say? So think on these things. That's where we're going in the next weeks. I have several texts that we're going to look at. It's like we did this one very specifically Continue to engage and ask questions. But here, here, take away from this text our equal standing before Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? Let me pray for us as we close. Oh, Father, thank you for the gospel that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That we contribute nothing. That you have loved us. And given your son. To be the curse. For us. That you have adopted us. As sons. Into your family. So that we have the promise of an inheritance. That is certain. Grant us hope this morning. Of this inheritance. And the security. That we belong to Christ. We bless you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.